Abolition. Abolition. It's based on which way the culture is swinging, mm-hmm. you know, and the culture is is swinging in a way that avoids any any p- possible accusations of racism. If you think in in any way, shape, right. or form you're going to be thought of as racist, you avoid that because there's some people that say horrific shit about white people. Oh yeah, yeah. And they don't get banned. Literally calling for their yeah. death. <laughs> and and it, yes, they you don't get banned. You know that girl that got hired by New York Times and was a massive uproar because she had so many anti-white things on her Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, the Asian girl. The Asian girl. The Asian girl. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean just all that ridiculous left-wing woke nonsense you know that you're allowed to be completely racist against white people massive generalizations against white men in particular yeah yeah it is it absolutely is discrimination and it's absolutely what what you're doing is you're being prejudiced but you're being prejudiced with a stamp but you've got a stamp of approval yeah yeah you're allowed to be and i love the the just rules that are made up that are ridiculous like oh you're a racist i can't be a racist right I'm this or that or right. th- I can't be sexist. I can't be this. I mean, right. it's like who's making these fucking right. rules up? Exactly. And how come I am not I, privy to I'm any of them? It's my great pleasure to introduce Chicago's very own Oscar Brown Jr. Apologize for being black. All I am plus all I lack. Please, sir, please, ma'am, give me some slack. Cause I apologize. I apologize for being poor, for being sick and tired and so. Since I ain't slick, don't know the scope, I do apologize. I apologize because I bear resemblance most black people share. Thick lips, flat nose, and nappy hair. Yes, I apologize. I apologize for how I look, for all the lows and blows I took. On those Lord knows I'd close the book as I apologize. I apologize for all I gave, for letting you make me your slave. And go into my early grave. Yes, I apologize. I apologize for being caught, for being sold, for being bought, while being told I count for naught. Yeah, I apologize. I apologize for all I've done, for all my toil out in the sun. Don't want to spoil your righteous fun, so I apologize. I apologize and curse my kind for being fooled, for being blind, for being ruled and in your bind. Yes, I apologize. I apologize and curse my fate for being slow, for being late, because I know it's me you hate. Why not apologize? I apologize and tip my hat, because you so rich and free and fat. Son of a bitch, that's where it's at, and I apologize. You just heard Joe Rogan, Black People Are Racist, and that was followed up by Oscar Brown Jr. performing on Death Poetry Jam. I apologize. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly online syndicated radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. 
We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. We're also simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Uh, peace, Brother Yusuf. I'm here in Sumter, South Carolina, at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. Well, I want to say I apologize, Max. <laughs> <laughs> so last week, we spent some time listening to the brave leaders of modern American constitutional slavery abolition from across the country. Speakers included Samuel N. Brown, author of or original author of ACA three, the California Abolition Act, Minnesota State Representative Rena Moran, Stephanie L. Willis, policy strategist for ACLU of Louisiana, and in New Jersey we heard from Carol Ruiz and Giles Ship speaking on ACR one four five. We also aired a little known speech by Frederick Douglass from May eighteen sixty five. It was his first public comments on the 13th Amendment, where he directly addresses the impending dismantlement of the American Anti-Slavery Society. Make sure you check that out in our archives. This week, we discussed the system of modern enslavement as it affects U.S. descendants of slaves. The false narratives, the systemic traps, the criminalization processes, and the racial disparities, which are uniquely overrepresented in black communities. We'll be joined by the director of Decarcerate Louisiana, Curtis Davis. You all remember Curtis when he was on here before, and we have Curtis back again. Decarcerate Louisiana, or DELA for short, just had their slavery abolition bill, HB 298, passed through its first committee hearing on May 16th a complete reversal from last year's loss and a 9-6 to six vote. In Louisiana, black people constituted 33% of state residents, but 52% of people in jail, and 67% of people in prison. Since 1970, wasn't that long ago, 1970, the jail population has increased by 665%. We're going to explain why. We've got some great music mixes for you and a powerful Bridging the Gap segment. This will be another must-hear episode. Count on it. So before we start that, Max, tell us what you think of the opening track and how has your week been? Um, the opening track, was it's important for me. I thought it was powerful, of course, where we start off with a bang, you know what I mean? And that was kind mm-hmm. of a shock from listeners, I'm sure. But it's important to me because of the climate we exist in right now, where somehow or another we have allowed – Racists to adopt the idea unchallenged that black people are the real racists. I've even seen the president of the United States, Trump at the time, sit on national television and explain how black people were the real racists in America. Now, for centuries, decades at least, we have fought against that narrative, saying you uh, black people are not capable of being racist. Uh, because racism requires both prejudice and power. You can be prejudiced against, and we do that. You can be, uh, you can face discrimination, and we do that. But you are not facing racism. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they're all doing it now, including Mr. Joe Rogan. And because of that, it puts 
it demonizes us further. It turns us into the boogeyman. Like Malcolm said, what the media would do, where they would have you uh, loving the people that are doing the bad stuff and hating the people that are doing the good. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But that's where we're at right now. And we're already demonized to the point where people feel like they need to go kill old women, right? What else are you trying to achieve here? So it's important to me that people understand this. Uh, we're going to talk about it throughout the program. It's going to be a big chunk of some of the stuff we're going we're gonna to go in on. Uh, Yusuf? Well, that's good. And I see uh, Curtis has joined us. I want to bring Curtis in so he can chime in on the opening track. I don't know how much of the opening track that you caught, but if you'd like to comment on that portion that you did catch, Curtis, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me, man. I really appreciate the opportunity to share the information with your listeners about what's really going on in the United States with the um, monopoly against black lives. And um, what Max always says, the real enslavement of our people and not just um, the acquisition of our labor, but the dehumanization of our folks based on skin color. Good to hear from you again, Brother Curtis. Uh, I know you and I have been working closely now for some time, and I was really so proud of the accomplishments that you and your team have gained going in a complete reversal, as we said in the opening, where nine to six you failed last year, and this year you got a unanimous vote. And I believe tomorrow you get uh, it goes into the Senate, and you expect it to get a unanimous vote there too. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we have a... Um... The, the floor debate is going to happen. We believe that this is a time where the Republican Party, um, we're dominated here in Louisiana by a um, supermajority in the House and the Senate. So it's their time to decide whether or not Louisiana should progress and go into a, um, a stronger future without slavery instead of what we've been dealing with, with the marginalization of our people by a weaponized legal system. So we need two-thirds of the vote in order to have a constitutional amendment vote for 2023. Whether it's unanimous or not, that's a big, big, big um, push. But I think that we have enough votes to get two-thirds of um, the votes that are needed to have this constitutional amendment vote. Man, that is so powerful. And uh, it, Louisiana, the deep, dark South, the prison capital of the world, um, <laughs> is joining the ranks, <clears throat> the ranks of Oregon, and Vermont, Tennessee, uh, Colorado, Alabama, Colorado, mm-hmm. Utah, Nebraska. Uh, the movement is incredible, and it's so powerful that uh, we've gotten to the point where now, even in the deep, dark South, they're like, yeah, you're right, that, that is slavery. <laughs> it says it right there, so I guess we need to do something about it. Uh, and you've been right at the heart of that. You were also a, a part of the Jim Crow juries and having that reversed. Uh, and found unconstitutional, right? 139 years worth of discrimination, and we were able to actually, uh, with the help of the national team, change that within a three-year period of time. So we've been doing some impossible stuff, man, and I'm just amazed. Every morning I wake up, I'm like, is this even real? These laws have existed for so long, and the, the, the power structure is coming tumbling down. So all we have to do is continue to push, and who knows what we might be able to do. One of the questions that came up in the hearings this past week um, was 
to directed to Representative Jordan. Edmund Jordan, he did a good job this uh, time around of maintaining his position. <laughs> I even like watching mm-hmm. him throw some bows right back at them. But one of the questions that they kept hammering at him is, why do you want to remove this exception? Uh, what do you expect to come from it? The idea that slavery is, is legal right now wasn't enough for them. Uh, do you have any comments towards that uh, regarding that question? Okay. Um, they, the biggest thing in Louisiana is that it's, this is indentured servitude in a way um, that allows the state to make hundreds of millions of dollars off of the labor of the people that they have incarcerated. It's not just about labor, though. It's about housing human beings, human trafficking. For every um, body that they put in the bed, they get a per diem amount of money every day from the taxpayers for that um, that that body. They um, make a lot of money from styrofoam cups, from plastic spoons, from the food that's actually being bought and served. Um, it might cost 20 cents to get a roll of toilet paper, they would sell to the state for $3, right? So individual companies are making hand over fist um, exorbitant profits from what's going on. So the, the changes of the laws that we're dealing with right now are not actually symbolic. But um, Representative Jordan needed to use the moral high ground, actually get the Republicans to be able to make this something that they could say that they're on the right side of history on based on what may have happened in Buffalo the Saturday before our hearing. Nobody wanted to say that they they supported um, any anti-black laws on that Monday. So even though that was a tragedy, it actually helped change something real big here in the deep, dark South. Yeah, some of these tragedies have been beneficial for us. COVID, for instance, forced them to start doing hearings in a digital manner. <clears throat> and so we were able to uh, support hearings all across the country and testify right. uh, because of that, rather than have to actually be there in person, which was a big boost for us. <clears throat> One of the things you just mentioned is about the money that's being made. I got an article here from uh, Skywag Magazine where they said that in um, one parish, the sheriff's office pockets 64% of a prisoner's gross wages. And mind you, they're only making about 12 cents an hour. And they say that's with, that's used to pay for their room and board in jail in the parish. And then they said operators across all work release programs in Louisiana made $35.5 million from prisoners' wages in 2015 in addition to the per diem payments the state gave for each state prisoner and millions from commissary sales to their captive clientele. That's just uh, one parish they're talking about. Five million dollars plus the store costs where the, you know people buying from the commissary and the per diem payments of having to pay room and board for a prison somebody forced you into. Fellas? You, Seth? <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I'm sitting here doing some research as Max is talking, but just hearing that, it's like, you know, I'm looking at our flyer for this week, and 
you know, the flyer has, it says Black Monopoly, and it has, you know, the semblance of the Monopoly board where every square is go to jail. Every square. And then there's still the, where go would be, there's a person sitting in jail. And where free parking is, there's a person sitting in jail. You know, and it's like, hearing those numbers shows how they've figured a way out to monopolize off of blackness. You know, that extended beyond the plantation and it has sustained itself for so long and but for slavery abolitionists this would go on forever right under people's noses and no one would bat an eye because they've been able to sell it in a manner that was socially acceptable because in some neighborhood it's a badge of honor to go to prison in other neighborhoods, people feel safe when they hear of large amounts of people getting locked up. But under it is this money game that's, that's happening that no one really knows about except the key players. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And, you know, with Monopoly, the, the whole purpose of the game is to obtain much pro- as much property and as much money as you can get. And they've been able to figure out how to do this in real life. Yeah, every step of the way for us is go to jail. <clears throat> um, that's the trap that's been set, and we are the commodity being traded, even before we're affected by the 13th Amendment. When we reach the Paris right. jail, they're already uh, exploiting us and our families at that moment mm-hmm. already. I remember somebody saying that as soon as you get arrested, there's like a dozen people that get paid. It's probably more than that uh, because yes. there's so many hands in this pot. Uh, there was a big expose in Mississippi a couple of years ago. You remember with the director of prisons in the whole state, uh, Christopher Epps, mm-hmm. found to yes. be guilty. Uh, he was facing over 300 years in prison. Found out to be guilty that he was taking these no-big contracts, working with a j- former judge uh, to manipulate the system so that he would get paid by these corporations who had this captive uh, clientele. And the Mississippi prison was in some of the worst conditions in the known universe. Just remembering the for-profit private prison out there for kids by the GEO group that was uh, mm-hmm. shut down because of what was all, always happened. Uh, so he got found guilty, and he was making all this money. At one point, they tracked him going to nine different banks. I believe it was like nine different banks in one hour, and each bank he was going and depositing $9,990. Now, you know, he was doing that to avoid the taxes and to put all his money into his accounts. He had all kinds of property he had gotten. He was even the director of the organization that rates the prisons and how good they are. And Mississippi was always receiving a number one rank, like top of the line. But it was the worst in the damn world. Uh, and he's in prison right now, and that went all the way up to the gover- governor. But they also found uh, the FBI, because they're doing a sting across multiple states, that their contracts were placed like Amarac uh, and Geo Group and others traced to South Carolina and Louisiana. 
We're all involved in this. But a fun fact, the the Burrell Kane, who was the P.T. Barnum of Louisiana um, jail systems and was probably one of the greatest architects in um, convict leasing in the 21st century, is now the director of the Mississippi um, system. So think about that. He was made to resign in Louisiana after they found out that he had a, a continuous criminal enterprise going on and his sons and family members were convicted and sent to prison. And he's now allowed to be the superintendent of the Mississippi jail. system. So it's just a continuing cycle all the way from the original architect, Samuel L. James, who came up with the um, convict leasing system in the first place, along with the non-unanimous jury system all the way to this date to where prisoners all over the country are working um, for pennies on the dollar, doing telemarketing, making computer chips, fighting wildfires in California, working at shipyards here in Louisiana and on uh, oil tankers and so forth and so on. It, it goes so big that nobody really understands that this entire system has never been about correcting our criminal or crime issues. It's always been about a few people making a whole lot of money. And we're now being able to kind of educate the public a little bit on the fact that this is about money. We imagine a world where a law enforcement apparatus works to put itself out of business. Right now, the incentive is only um, law enforcement people are the only people who get paid more if they don't do their job right. So if crime rates go higher, they get higher pay. They get overtime pay. So, I mean, it would, it's counterintuitive for them to want to actually lower crime rates or to come with a system that's designed to actually fix our um, our condition here in the United States. And, we, I mean, working with Max and working with the Abolish um, Slavery National Network has actually educated me on a whole lot of things. And one of the biggest things that we have coming up is Juneteenth and having to change the narrative or help people understand that 1865 Galveston did not end slavery in the United States of America. So we got a whole lot of more work to do, you guys. And uh, could you speak to that, um, Max, so that our, our folks can really understand how big this is? Um, in regards to Juneteenth? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, well, for those that don't know, Juneteenth uh, is a commemoration. It commemorizes the day that General Granger of the Union Army showed up in Galveston, Texas, and informed the uh, quote-unquote last slaves in America that they had been freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. Unfortunately, that Emancipation Proclamation didn't actually free anybody in a rebel-controlled state, or in well, not rebel, in Union-controlled states. It only freed them in rebel-controlled states, which Texas was one of. Uh, but it allowed the northern states to keep their slaves. In addition to that, they had already begun the transition through the exception clause to convict leasing. And so I think it was just four months after General Granger showed up in Texas, they began convict leasing in Texas, where rather than call you a slave, they would simply accuse you of a crime, incarcerate you, call you a criminal, and work you to death. Uh, with no concern anymore. Matter of fact, it was even worse because they were mad at black people that we had dared to help take down the Confederacy. 
Uh, and so they took that out on him in these prisons where the death rate was as much as 30%. And a quarter of the people who were in these prisons and being leased out for labor were children, 9 to 12 years old. Uh, so this was a horrible condition, very much different than chattel slavery, while maintaining the same uh, effect of controlling every aspect of our lives. The difference was that the individual could no longer own slaves, but the state could. So that's the narrative. The narrative is that they've been freed, that the emancipation is a celebration of our freedom. And we did not get that freedom. We ain't got it right now. How can you even think that we've got freedom right now when in the United States, we have more black men in cages than the top five African nations do combined. They have nearly 300 million bl- black men in the top five African nations. We've got about 25 million, and we still have more people in prison than in cages than they do. That's unreal to even think about. Uh, so I don't know what you're talking about, freedom. If you want to celebrate something for Juneteenth, celebrate the fact that some of us got to go search for our families. So have a family reunion, because that's what they were doing. They were looking for their families along the way before they ended up in prisons or jails. Wow. You know, and I, and I, yeah, and ironically, I mean, it didn't take long. You know, when we talk about the uh, 13th Amendment being – uh, ratified on December 6th, 1865, and then the proclamation being given on December 18th, June 2nd, I mean, January 2nd of 1866, saw the first black codes instituted in Mississippi, I believe. Was it Mississippi or Louisiana? Yeah, two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Less than two weeks later, it was already black codes out there to make sure that that system kept going. You know, we talk about uh, intention all the time. And you see what the next steps were. That shows what their clear intention was. And then it was only a few years later that we heard in Ruffin versus Commonwealth, where it was like, you know, once a person is incarcerated, they become a slave to the state, they're civilly dead, and their estate can be dispersed like that of a dead man. So all of these things happened right away. It didn't take long. It didn't take 30, 40, 50, 60 years. A lot of this stuff was happening within the next couple of years because they knew what was going to happen. So it's still happening today. I mean, in Joe Biden's administration, having this um, black people celebrate all over the country saying, wow, finally we got a a holiday, Juneteenth, to commemorate the the end of slavery. That takes a lot of the the effort out of our community to understand that our racial equity problem still rests in the roots of the um, constitutional laws all over the country that are the slavery exception clause to make sure that black people remain marginalized. So I think that we cannot allow our folks um, and our allies to fall asleep on this. And I know it's going to make some people unpopular to take the wins out of ourselves for the Juneteenth celebrations, but this is as important as anything that we have going on right now. In my right. Um, you know, it was, it was a huge slap to the face when 
the announcement of the federal holiday came about. It happened on the exact day that we were announcing the proposed 28th Amendment to uh, repeal. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, it's like I got stuck on my words, but to repeal and replace the 13th Amendment to remove the exception clause. That got sort of like pushed away from the headlines, and this federal holiday got pushed to the forefront, and that became the news. And, you know, I, I was looking at things. Someone, I believe it was Sean Darling, had made, sent us a photo of, you know, these Juneteenth, all these things that are being sold. I think it was T-shirts. And I went and I looked on Amazon, and I was just like, wow. I mean, they have everything on there from paper plates and cups to banners and I mean, you just name it, and you know, I hope I'm not sitting up here uh, promoting stuff for them where they're gonna people are gonna be going out to buy it. We're kind of like telling you, look, don't go buy this stuff because it's a lie. You know, Juneteenth did not free anybody, not in the yeah. sense of what true freedom is. What it did was it opened the door for what the next phase was gonna be. That's all it did. Because, as we've shown you, within weeks, within weeks, people were enslaved again, just through a new system. And that's all that happened. Hey, um, Curtis, there's a, a couple of things that I did want to cover with you, but I also have some tracks I want to play today. So let me ask you, do you plan on staying with us through the whole show, or are you good for just the first hour? Um, We have a a statewide call to get ready for in the morning. They're actually on the call right now. So I can use my other phone for the um, Zoom call and because I really do want to stay with you guys for as long as possible. But we have to get up in the morning and get these laws in place. You know, the um, devil is busy, so the freedom fighters have to stay as busy. All right. Um, exactly. I have a track I want to play, but before that, I do just want to point something out. You know, one of the big problems that they're complaining about in Louisiana is that they may have to uh, review all the felony cases because in Louisiana, they sentence people to what's called hard labor. And hard labor mm-hmm. is just another synonym for what? Slavery, indentured slavery. Right. So I said, well, how many states actually sentence people to hard labor? I, I wasn't sure. I, I didn't know. And I'm still not really sure. I only found two that do it so far, and that was Arkansas and Louisiana, where they sentenced people to hard mm-hmm. labor. But one of the things that I did found by mistake uh, kind of surprised me. It took me to Kentucky, and I discovered that in addition to the hard labor, they also start the felony disenfranchisement, where you can no longer vote, and it's written into either their constitutions or into their other statutes. And I found out that in Kentucky – the same year that they adopted the exception clause to use convict leasing was the same year they also uh, introduced the felony disenfranchisement law. If that's not a matter of an intent, you know exactly Mm -hmm. what you're doing. You're going to put them in prison, turn them back into property, and then remove their ability to vote for anything to get you out for the rest of their natural lives. And there's states all over the country that have very, very similar laws to that. We have a map that we'll share with uh, you uh, later on. Today, we don't have our assistant here, Jeanette Smith. Uh, She's in a hospital with her mother. Send some prayers out that her mother uh, gets well. 
Uh, but we'll get the For sure. information on our page at Abolition Today on Facebook as soon as possible. Now, with that being said, I want to go ahead and play this interview or a section of it from one of our former guests, Professor Robert Chase out of SUNY. And he talks about the black codes and uh, convict leasing and criminalizing blackness. And that's going to be played along with Wynton Marsalis' Black Codes, which is a brilliant combination from Brother Yusuf. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Yusuf Hassan, Max Parthas, and our guest, Curtis Davis. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. The 13th Amendment has that exception clause that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, where the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. And it's within that loophole of the exception clause that allowed states to then make someone what became known as a slave of the state as the Virginia decision Ruffin v. Commonwealth declared in 1871 that a convicted felon is for the time being a slave of the state. He is civilly dead and his estate, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. And out of that came a whole series of laws that accelerated the criminal justice system. So for instance, a minor theft Uh, like picking a strawberry, for instance. Something that was kind of um, open and common uh, during the system of enslavement, where slaves lived in an agricultural space where they might have access to some of the agricultural goods and products of the plantation. So picking a strawberry in that context might not create punishment. But in this moment of emancipation, Picking that same strawberry could land them into the system of convict leasing. It's important to understand that convict leasing was initiated almost immediately after emancipation. It traversed the moment of enslavement to freedom and then re-enslavement through the criminal justice system. Because the system was so potentially profitable and revolutionary for modernizing the South, there was an effort to look for any opportunity to re-enslave or re-coerce black labor. We can look at the black codes, for instance, passed immediately after emancipation. These restricted African-American people's access and rights to own property, conduct business, buy and lease land, or move freely through public space, because public space itself was criminalized. And that was a contentious space, because the first thing that people who had been enslaved wanted to do was to reclaim their mobility, to move off the plantation where they had been. But planters were very interested in securing their labor through labor contracts. And if one didn't sign those labor contracts, that might get one a prison sentence. And that prison sentence would be then leased to these private companies. Vagrancy laws criminalized public space and any African-American man out of work, for instance, or failure to pay a tax could be counted as vagrancy. Other laws included things like loud talk, 
in a public place, engaging in sexual activity, or riding a freight car without a ticket, challenging employers without permission. If you don't mind, I'm just going to read a little bit of this Mississippi Black Code. That all freed men, free Negroes, and mulattoes in this state over the age of 18 years found on the second Monday in January 1866 or thereafter without lawful employment or business or found unlawfully assembling themselves together either in the day or night and all white persons assembling themselves with freedmen, free Negroes or mulattoes shall be deemed vagrants and on conviction shall be fined and in the case of a freedman, free Negro or mulatto, $50, a white man, $200. So what's going on in this black code? One, they're criminalizing the idea of vagrancy, which simply means being in public space or moving in public space. They're also criminalizing the association of white folks and black folks in that public space. And so that is one of those examples of how this criminality worked. Another that's often cited is what's known as the Pig Law, passed in 1866 in Mississippi. And this redefined grand larceny offenses that had previously been minor misdemeanors, punishable now by five years, to include minor theft of a farm animal or any property uh, valued at $10 or more. This pig law had a particular effect. Arrest quadrupled from 272 in 1874 to 1,072 in 1877. So it lengthened the stay of someone in the convict lease system and made more severe the penalty. But in practice, these laws that were passed about loud talk, engaging in sexual activity, abrogating a lifetime labor contract, riding a freight car without a ticket, how they were practiced and how they were policed was targeted and focused on the black community with the knowledge that incarcerating someone who was African-American, one, meant that you had cheap labor for the convict lease system, but two, it also meant that the criminal justice system itself, through the process of criminalization and through the laws itself, was upholding the creation of the Jim Crow white supremacist space of racial oppression. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard Dr. Robert Chase of SUNY Stony Brook for his appearance on the Teaching Hard History podcast episode entitled Criminalizing Blackness, Prisons, Police, and Jim Crow. And that was accompanied by Winston Marsalis, Black Codes. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthis, Yusuf Hassan, and our family member that's visiting us today, Curtis Davis, Director of Decarcerate Louisiana. Uh, 
I'll pass it to you first, Curtis. Any? Well, I'm sure you have plenty to talk about. Dr. Case broke down a lot of stuff within that uh, six minutes. Man, they should be paying you guys for all of this game that you're giving away for free out here because um, black leadership across the whole United States of America has intellectually dishonest because most of them realize what's been holding us back, but very few of them have been strong enough to step up and say, hey, look, we need to stop this once and for all. If we're going to ever have real equality and serious opportunities in the United States, these badges and incidents and these codified um, enslavement laws have to be removed because they are the number one enemy to black progress. And I just want to thank you guys so much for taking your time out and putting together such eloquent shows and, you know, making sure that even the dumbest of us can understand that we have to do something about this in order to change our condition. So, again, thank you guys, man, for having me on and for doing what you do every day. Appreciate that. Yes, indeed, brother. Um, I know recently, uh, again, back to Louisiana, uh, one of the concerns, as I mentioned before the track, was this hard labor thing. Um, You want to make any comments Mm -hmm. on the sentencing to hard labor in Louisiana and the potential effect this bill might have on that? Because that's a big concern for them, right? The real reason that I even wrote my book, Slave State Evidence of Apartheid in America, is I actually wrote it while I was in prison, as a matter of fact, because I came to the realization that I was actually enslaved. And I I knew that, okay, you guys got me doing all this crazy stuff. I mean, not just making money for them, but just spending all of my days doing something. They want you goose picking, which means that you have to squat down and pick um, weeds out of the ground or either just getting a shovel and turning over dirt just to put the dirt back into place, right? I'm like, how are they even making any money based on this? This hard labor thing is a necessity. The tedium, the monotony of it actually is designed to break the human mind. So the Louisiana um, system was actually designed to beat black people down, put us back in a condition of not just the, the traditional chattel slavery because we were no longer owned by white people, but we were underneath the foot of white people. So if you we're sentenced to hard labor, then you could be made to do tedious tasks every day for up to 12 hours a day, right? So in Louisiana, because all felony crimes are sentenced with hard labor, if this law came to pass, then it has a potential for a challenge of every single conviction in the state of Louisiana. And that's what the Republican Party or the opposition knows about this um, this bill, but can't really um, used to stop the bill from moving forward um, at this point. So we do have a chance to really change history in a major way out here. I don't know um, the future, but I think that good things are um, ahead for us. Their reasoning for wanting to sentence people to hard labor uh, varies depending on which case or Supreme Court hearing you're talking about or what state you're talking about. I know in Louisiana, they were very clear that the reason they want to sentence you to hard labor is so that you help make up for the cost of incarcerating you. So if you're picking cotton out in the field, uh, you're you know out in the field working on the vegetables, or you're working for a company making components and stuff like that, that's going to somehow 
offset the price of your incarceration. But in Arkansas, the Supreme Court said that the purpose behind that policy is to avoid having prisoners maintain an idleness, because that would entail a heavy burden upon the taxpayer without any corresponding benefit to the criminals themselves. <laughs> so which one is it? Is it because you just don't want to twiddle in our thumbs or because we need to pay some money back that some, we suddenly owe for the crimes that you have accused us of? You're already getting rent, room, and board like it's a freaking hotel. It, it's not. I don't even really think that it's either of them, Max. Um, according to our statistical data and research, the entire population of prisoners were paid about $1.6 million last year, right? In a system mm-hmm. that um, was um, maybe $700 million. So the actual work that we're doing or getting paid for or whatever, incarceration. Now, what I do know is that from my own eyesight and experience is that prisoners um, drive 18-wheeler trucks, do underwater deep-sea welding, do um, electronics work. Um, they're electricians. I'm talking about here in, in Louisiana. Um, work everywhere, but we work for people, like individuals, not the state. The state leases us out, or not the state, the wardens of the facilities lease us out to different um, corporations, um, and they're probably like family members, old uncles or um uncles twice removed that owns different type of companies and they pay mm-hmm. a wage of let's say 80 cent an hour to those special inmates that have special skills for a job that probably is worth $50 an hour like a deep sea welder makes like $100 an hour um, one that's trained in Angola would make like a dollar and 20 cent an hour because that's a specialty job where are the other 48 dollars and 80 cent going that's the issue and those kickbacks are going to individual private com- companies it has nothing to do mm-hmm. with um, benefiting the state in any shape form or fashion so this goes deeper and deeper and deeper than you guys have ever um or any of us could probably understand um vending at the um commissaries the every item that's sold in the commissary comes from an individual private company a private owner and the process of getting involved in selling something in a prison has more to do with who you know than your ability to deliver that product. So um, not to mention the telephones, the, the co- collect calling system, the JPay system. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many forms of, of monies that are being made that are not counted in the actual uh, estimate of how much it costs to incarcerate somebody. This is multi-billion-dollar operations that's happening in Louisiana, and we just got to figure out um, how to quantify it and how to um, use our, our our lay economics to explain this to people who have made a system that's almost unexplainable. I'm in agreement with you that it's neither. Uh, I think they have shown by their actions exactly why they're doing this. Uh, what did James Baldwin say? I can't believe what you say. Because I see what you do. See what you're um, doing. And between, eight, between 1866 and 1869, there were seven states that became the first states in the U.S. to lease out convicts. It was Alabama, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Florida. Those were the first ones in a three-year period immediately after emancipation to exploit 
exception clauses that they have in their state constitution um, and have had them since that point and some even before. Uh, in addition to that, there's a, I mean, if you just look it up on Wiki, where they talk about prison labor post 13th Amendment, and this is like the common knowledge site, you know? It says, immediately following the abolition of slavery in the United States and the ratification of the 13th Amendment, the slave labor dependent economy of the South faced widespread poverty and market collapse. Southern lawmakers began to exploit the so-called loophole written in the 13th Amendment and turned to prison labor as a means of restoring the pre-abolition free labor force. And then they go on basically saying what Professor Chase just said. But that's why they did it, in order to rebuild the South and to continue to make money on slavery and human trafficking. And again, they also became among the first, I believe, the women's prison in Louisiana was one of the first uh, examples of renewed for-profit private prisons. The uh, began there with CCA, uh, with the women's prison in Louisiana. So they went from convict leasing and working your ass to death to just warehousing your body for money. So they put you in a cell. They collect a bunch of money for having you in that cell. They uh, exploit you and your family while you're there. And money's coming in from every direction. And all you got to do is sit in a cage. Curtis? That's the best explanation I've heard in a while. And you're right, Max. We do, that, was, that was my point. Just me picking some grass out of the uh, ground is not making the money. So I had to really dig inside myself to figure out how are you guys benefiting from me being here? That's when we started studying the per diem. That's when we really started studying how well connected these um, different organizations are to the vending and the telephone system and whatever it costs to have a a prisoner um, in a place, right? And that's why I talked about styrofoam clubs, plastic spoons, straws, disposable stuff not you know the you know the stuff that we need to keep on buying over and over and over again mm-hmm. somebody making million dollars off of plastic phones he, he leading up to our music break at eight o'clock <laughs> yeah man that's that's what i was hearing as he was talking i was like oh uh-huh. man exactly because chase scissor was breaking it down he said somebody got to uh, build the buses that take the prisoners there. Somebody got to build the prisons. Somebody got to make the ink for finger, fingerprints. Somebody got to mm-hmm. make guns and handcuffs. It, it's a huge economic development program that is built on the backs of predominantly black people. We're talking about 67 percent. And that is the, the issue because it was designed to discriminate against a particular group. We're taking a petition up with the United Nations Humanitarian Rights Council and um, indicting um, Louisiana in a, a ingenious form of genocide because not only are they targeting ethnic groups for discrimination, they also don't allow, allow for reproduction. So this is another ingenious form to keep our population growth in check. And it's just, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So we have to fight them on several different fronts. But I'm going to turn the show back over to you guys. And, man, I love what you do. Remember that. You know, uh, you're right. And they always come with these crazy-ass counter-arguments. You'll hear them just spit it out into the air like they hadn't thought about it at all. 
and say things like, well, it's not just black people. White people go to prison, too. Well, let's talk about that, right, real <laughs> quick. Um, first mm-hmm. of all, the majority of inmates are men. It's like 94% of your prison and jail inmates are men. So let's just talk about the male population. In the white population of this 350 million people here in the United States, three-quarters of them consider themselves white. Uh, so you make up three-quarters of 350 million people. It's like 90 million or 100 million white males. A million of them are in prison of this 100 million pool. There's only like adult males in the black community, like 12 million a million of those are in prison. Do you see the problem here? You got 10 times <laughs> the number. 10 times right. to you, it, it's like nothing. It doesn't affect your community. You don't feel the ripple effects from it because by sheer numbers, you could take that blow and keep on moving as a people. For us, that's a tenth of our goddamn men. Right. If we were animals, Peter would be going crazy right now saying, if you do that to the male population of these people, this is what's going to happen because you know exactly what's going to happen. There's no unintended uh, results of this. When you take away a tenth of the male population, what do you think you're doing to the population? I've seen something called overpoaching of um, bull elephants in Tanzania, and they studied this, and they understood that once they overpoached the big male population because they were after the ivory tusk, right, that they seen a phenomenon happen. The juvenile um, male population started going into the human populated areas, turning over cars, going through people's living rooms. They became um, criminals. As, um, without a better way to understand it. And I believe that the ruling powers understood if they overpoached the black men, then our juveniles would become in the condition that we currently find them in. So you look at it and you say, wow, is this by in, um, happenstance or is it a design behind the destruction of our black uh, communities across the United States? So that gives me something to think about what you just said. And I hope I gave you guys something to think about at the same time. We have a lot of work to do. Steel yeah, I'm, I'm glad steel. you brought that up. I was just going to say, I'm glad you brought that up, because I see that there's a whole bunch of studies on that. Effects of poaching on bull mating success in a free-ranging African elephant. They have it on the elephant. They have it on uh, different animals. And they're talking about the effects of it. You know, we we know that it's common practice to uh, test things out on animals before they start bringing it into humans. Like that's how they do with medication and all things of that nature. And so, yeah, I'm looking at this and saying, you know what? Yeah, they're practicing with the animals to see what what, can what it happen. would do to them. Right, and it's intellectually ingenious, and it's um when they continue to pretend like they don't know what. I don't know why them black boys is acting like that out there in the streets across the United States of America. All of a sudden, everywhere that you find a 12 to 15-year-old black kid, his pants are hanging below his buttocks. He's running around like he's crazy, and everybody thinks that this just happened. There's no cause to it. And I just want us to start remembering that we're responsible as well as these white people who are poaching us because now with knowledge comes responsibility to fix our condition. And it all goes back to these same laws rooted in institutional racism and most uh, importantly, the slavery exception clause. 
Um, to switch gears a little bit, uh, we were on air last week, the day uh, after. That was on Sunday, that the Saturday that the shootings occurred in Buffalo, right? So it was the right. next day. Yeah. The next day we were on air. We talked about it a little bit, not too much. Uh, but, you know, everybody should know by now that there were 13 people shot in Buffalo, New York, by a racist white supremacist who wrote a manifesto, told everybody was he was going to do, and then went out and live-streamed it on Twitch while he ran around like he was playing some video game just murdering black people, predominantly old women and old men in a soft target supermarket that he had uh, already went and surveilled as much as a month prior to attacking it. He was there for sure the day before. So he already knew where he was going and what he was going to do. He probably even knew the names of his victims. He ran across one white guy who was laying on the floor about to die. I mean, he he was pretty sure he was going to die because the guy saw him, pointed his gun at him, and said, I'm sorry, and then went and found himself another black person to kill. Only reason he's still drawing breath is for the color of his skin. If that's not the height of white privilege that I don't know what it is. You're going to be the living example example of it for the next five decades of what white privilege mm-hmm. is. Only reason you're breathing. But that happened um, to us. And it's not the first time it happened because the last time I remember right here in my own community with Dylan Roof, who lived in my city, he was only about a mile from me. He had to go past my freaking house to get to Charleston where the, another community I worked with for 15 years, and he murdered nine people with the same ideology. Um, we don't feel safe in this country. We never really did, but now we're pretty sure that we can't, barely, we can't even go nowhere. You can't go to the supermarkets, you can't go to schools, you can't go to hospitals, anywhere where there's no defense. They can get you, and they're ready and willing to do that. Um, you're going to have to do a whole show on this white re- replacement theory, though, Max, to let people understand that we're in it's a clear and present danger for us. Clear and present danger because it's yeah. demonizing us, outright demonizing us. And more than just demonizing they're calling us devils and, and whatnot. We've got to track about that later. But I'll tell you what we do. Um, we're going to kill two birds with one stone, all right? Uh, first, we don't go in on Fox News because a lot of people had the nerve to ask whether or not Fox News was racist against black people. Like, are, you, are you really serious right now asking us if, asking if Fox News is racist against black people in particular? So we're going to show you that they are, and then we're going to follow that with uh, our boy Chase Shizza, who's going to break down the prison industrial complex and what happens there. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Ramon Youssef Hassan. And today our special guest is Brother Curtis Davis, the director for Decarcerate Louisiana, who just passed through the House with their slavery bill. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 I think these civil rights leaders are nothing more than racist. They're keeping their neighborhoods and their their African-American brothers enslaved, if you will, by continuing to let them think that they're, or force them to think that they're well, victims, that way. the whole system is against them. Articulate it better, Sean. It's so sad to me. We can't even say you're articulate. We can't even well, give you guys compliments. Half of the kids in this country under five years old are minorities. White people are having fewer. Put it bluntly, we need more babies. I dealt with people like this for 20 years. 
They will get up every day. They will kill somebody and go have some chicken at KFC. Crime is, and, and out of wedlock birth, uh, black folks having babies, not being married, and stuff like that is out of control. And it's not because they lack material things, but because not all, not all, not all, right. but most of them lack more character. Look right. what they did to the dome. In three days, they turned the dome into a ghetto. The reason that he's considered such a big deal is simply because he's black. He is a, a, a black candidate surrounding himself with a lot of white advisors. He represents some sort of hope of bringing us all together anyway. And again, I think the only reason that looks plausible is because we see something about his being brown that creates that. It's almost like he's mammy. As it relates to the Kramer in this, Kramer used the N-word repeatedly. Does that, does that bother you? It, it, no, that doesn't bother me. Black folk, especially racist blacks, have the freedom of expression when it comes to the issue of race and morality. But white folks are, uh, are made to be quiet. We always love having you. Appreciate it. Proud Thank to be you. on your board at Bond. Thank you. New information has recently come to light regarding the Trinity Unity Church in Chicago. And that's the one that Senator Barack Obama calls home. What they have at this church on their website is, you know, commitment to the black community, commitment to the black family, adherence yeah. to the black work ethic. Is it racist, Jesse it, it, it is absolutely racist. Are they worshiping Christ? Are they worshiping uh, well, Af African things black? Barack Obama is associated with a racist church. They really are uh, quite cultish, quite separatist. Mr. Rush, Sam Combs, you, I have a question. Are you questioning Barack Obama's Christianity? Yeah. Recent police shootings involving African-American victims across the U.S. has led to a string of angry protests from outraged black community members. Most police officers are good, honest, hardworking men and women. But there is a culture of police officers out run. there that represent a legalized James, we got to run. And we need to recognize it and do it. If there's any national it. disgrace, it's your rush to judgment in this particular case and your use of racial politics for your own aggrandizement. That is the national disgrace. The national disgrace. Welcome to the uh, United States of corporate motherfucking America. Denson. Smith Barney. Merrill Lynch. Bristol Mars. Maytag. Craft Master, DuPont, MCI, SBC. When they declared a war on drugs, my nigga, they declared war on us. Drug offenders mean more prisoners, and more prisoners mean more prisons built. More wood, more concrete and iron. More trucks, more gas, more hind. Framers, plumbers, electricians, consultants, advisors, technicians. More guards, more guns. Pass more laws to lock up more niggas, and that's more funds. Now they gotta hire more ones. More handcuffs, silly clubs, and stun guns. See, more calls, more CBs, and sirens. Most drug offenders is nonviolent. It's all corporate. The state ain't the owner. This prison's brought to you by Tom Warner. Reverse agreement with the United States in terms of what they export and where it comes from. But the mere fact that they say that the the tariff um, act of 1930 that said that we're not allowed to accept prison labor produced goods, you know, um, imported into the country, means it should mean that you don't think it's right. 
And if you don't think it's I right, can. then you need to look in your own backyard and see what yeah, you're doing. Somebody got to drive the buses out to the sticks. Somebody got to make the ink for fingerprints. So these companies, they donate to candidates. Cash for the ones that's tough on crime in a state. More arrests equal more votes. Pass more laws that hurt more Latin, black, and poor folk. Then cut money for education so they can spend more on incarceration. The company that feds their kids at lunchtime now, feed them when they grown, locked on the child line. About a half a mil in jail for drug charges. It was only 50 down before Reagan took office. Then he sold guns for dope to the Contras. And crack rock exploded in Oakland and Compton. More gets locked up as expected. This prison's brought to you by General Electric. It just seems like they're they're taking advantage because the mere fact that they don't have overhead in terms of insurance and workers' comp and all these other things, you're having you're getting all these benefits as a result of having the labor. Um, and if you want to say, okay, well, we're training them, we're giving them a skill, we're giving back, it would be one thing. But if you're paying someone 17 cents an hour, that is heinous. It's a come up, a new slave workforce. Just lock these niggas up and make them work for us. And they like to rap about it. That'll work for us. Market them niggas helping slave a new workforce. Dope and guns, guns and dope. Keep them high, no hope, bro. And in and out of code, it's all profit. From the dope to the locksmith. Machine so big, Jesus Christ couldn't stop it. It's a parable. See the Pharaoh, the president. If Jesus came back, they label him a terrorist. I ain't religious, but I read the scriptures. From what I read, Jesus would have been banging for us niggas in that safe. And all poor folk on the struggle, they can lock me up. But the Lord forgive me for the hustle, cause niggas just on some feed, they kid shit. Living in the system brought to you by big business. Once you change your philosophy, you change your thought pattern. Once you change your thought pattern, you change your, your attitude. Once you change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. Abolition. That was a mix of Fox News clips, followed by the prison industrial complex by our main man, Chase Gizza, and followed up in the end by El Haj Malik Shabazz, Malcolm X, who just, uh, his 97th birthday just passed this past uh, Thursday on the 19th. So welcome back to Abolition Today, Max Parthas, Yusuf Hassan, and Curtis Davis. Uh, I'll start with you, Max, this time. I'm going to pass the mic to Curtis, I guess. Go ahead, Curtis. You got any comments on what you just heard? Oh, man, that was so deep. You know I'm a major hip-hop fan, so big mm-hmm. shout-out, man. Please send me the link to the Brother Music so we can um, get him on the radio down here. might be doing some shows because we want to involve the hip-hop community with the um, education of our people about the Slavery Exception Clause all summer. So we're going to be doing fundraisers, um, trying to use um, their platform as a way to let the younger um, people of our, our culture understand what we're up against. And the way that that brother so eloquent, eloquently explained the microeconomics that come along with the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. was actually ingenious. So thank you guys for playing that. But I'm going to shoot it back to you, Yusuf. <laughs> you know, uh there was, there was so much being said in those Fox News clips. Uh, just all these dog whistles that they're constantly putting out, you know, and they think that it's not racist. You know, when they start talking about, oh, we can't even say that they're, that they're eloquent or however you said it. You know, well, we know the racial history behind, 
you know, telling a black person that they speak well. You're so articulate. You know, it's because, yeah, because they treated us like we were cool, like we were buffoons in the past. And it was the expectation that we couldn't speak well. So right. they they know they know it. Like when they when they're saying this, they already know that they're lying. They know that they're putting out dog whistles. They know what they're doing, but they want to say it anyway. You know because we know who watches uh, Fox News, so they have to say things to make the people watching it feel good. You know to make them feel as though yeah, it's okay to say things like you say. It's okay to want to touch a black woman's hair. You know, they don't understand how racist these things are, the racist roots behind them, you know, of wanting to touch a black woman's hair or, you know, just uh, telling a black person, yeah, you speak well. You know, I've, I don't know. Sean's on the line. Maybe Sean can raise his hand and tell us if anyone's uh, ever told him that he speaks well. <laughs> you know, I'll ask, you know, our white listeners, you know, has anyone ever told you that you speak well? Or, you know, that's what I really it, want to know. It's missing the for a black person that you kind of leave unsaid in it when they do that. Right. Uh, right. You know, it's, it's the there expectation. Some, there were some things that were really You don't know how many times me. I've been told. Sorry about that, Max. But, okay, bro. Keep continuing. I was just going to say, you don't know how many times that I was told because, you know, from seventh grade on, I went to white schools. You don't know how many times I've been told that, or you're not like other black people. I've been told these words. You know, this isn't something we're talking about from the 1600s, 1700s. This was told directly to me, and they still continue to do it. You're not like other black people. Oh, you speak well. Oh, you you know, the things they say. I'm sorry, I don't want to go off on a rant. I'll pass it back to you, Max. I'm sorry, brother. I feel you, brother. There were some things that stood out for me other than, you know, just the general anger, just hearing this garbage, you know. Uh, but mm-hmm. first of all, the people that they had on there, about a third of them were Negropeans. So they were the yes. ones who would come on and say exactly what the white people want to hear so they could say, look, I didn't say it. The Negropean said it, and he's a black person. Uh, and that was Jesse Lee Peterson, at least one of them was on there, I'm sure. But he was the one that's saying about black people being racist. He also called the church racist. He's from a racist church. Wow, their church is racist too. Is that how it is? And then saying that, you know, it basically if you're concerned about the black plight, you must be racist against white people. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that those are corporate voices you're listening to. Whether you got the, the, the local Negro PN and the white supremacists together singing Kumbaya or not, that is a corporate voice. They do not allow anything on that channel that they don't want, that they haven't decided you should be hearing. So you're listening to the voice of the corporation using these puppets to program you and the people around you. And those are the very same corporations that Chase Schism broke down so eloquently when he started naming them by name, like General Electric. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's the same people. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to say about that. And uh, it demonizes us. As I, I keep saying, when you hear this, people are listening. And when they hear this, they think of, you know, us, black people. You're the problem. You damn Soros, paycheck collecting uh, commies and socialists. 
and you need to be eradicated. That's what they start talking. Well, I'm, I'm wondering when I'm going to get my check. I haven't gotten my check from George Soros, have you? Where's, where's my check? <laughs> Dude, we all work for George Soros, and we're all Black Lives Matter, right, Curtis? Curtis was like, my name is Bennett. He may have had to step off to the other calls for a second. I'm sorry. Didn't you say that we had um, uh, one of our white constituents on the phone? Uh, yeah. Do we? Uh, I wouldn't put him on the spot. Yeah, Sean, Sean, Sean's there, but he he may not want to come on. Sean, if you if you want to engage in the conversation, just press one. There he is. We, oh, we, we have, have somebody. And Sean. All right. So who is uh, Sean? Go ahead, make the comments. And eight hundred three. Hold on, we got you. Your, your mic is open. That's. I think that's tribal rain right there. Yes, it Sean, is tribal you rain. Sean, you may be muted. Sorry about that. Sean, you with us? Yeah, we got you now. We were being racist yeah. and oppressing him. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Feel <laughs> <on> my voice. <laughs> um, yeah, I I was kind of holding back a little bit because I didn't want to, you know, I um understand the best that I can, you know, as a white person, you know, how these things work, you know. So I didn't want to put my experience in there, but yeah, it's it's totally crazy, you know, um, what people try to um, portray black people as. <laughs> Right. And I her, think Curtis wanted to ask you a question. I think that's why he mentioned it. I mean, oh, okay. yeah. just from – and, Sean, I, I I just wanted to better understand because a lot like Yusuf, I've always been told that, wow, you're so articulate or, you know, and I, I mention it a lot in my book because every time I use – or they say you're a kind man because of the way that you talk. You're so persuasive. Have you ever been directed, I mean, with that type of information from white people? They said, oh, Sean, you, you sound so articulate. Or or is that a dog whistle? And what do you understand dog whistles to mean? Um, I would say from Fox News it probably is a dog whistle. But um, I don't know. Maybe maybe um, I need to think about that a little bit because, you know, I have been told before that I'm articulate. Um, but also th- there could be definitely a racial thing going on as well. So, um, in, in what I, context were you context were you told you you you're articulate? Um, that was when he was working for this phone sex company. One eight hundred call. Call me up. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> in the context of, of like of, of college, yeah, definitely. Um, but then again, you know, um, there always has. I mean, imagine yourself at a cocktail party. The first time you meet a group of people, you're over here. Um, I invite you to the the, uh, the south side of town where the black people at, and you know, upon introducing you, you say a few words, and an older black lady say, "My, you're you're so articulate." Have you ever had something like that to take place? Um, not that I can recall off the top of my head, um, possibly, but nothing's coming to mind in that context, no. Another thing right. that we get is, um, from our own people is, is that you talk too. white. Just, just want to remind you, the queen is on the line, too, holding up. So. Oh, Tribal <laughs> Rain, you're on the line. I'm sorry. How you doing, queen? How are you guys doing? Hey, Sally, Sally. 
Hey, you, you, you had something you wanted to share with us as well? Actually, yes, I did. In response to the whole question of the hair touching and the articulation, mm. as a black woman, you know, that's a big no-no. And it happens constantly. Uh, people feel they have the right to reach out and touch you without asking permission. And I know it it leads to a whole lot of um, misconceptions, like we're not actually supposed to speak out about it, and we're not supposed to acknowledge it and just go, oh, it's okay, it's all right. And it, 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 it really irks me, and it irks a lot of people. And yes. half the time, now I used to just go, oh, you know, I'm really not comfortable with that. Now I just tell them no. I can tell them Nowadays you, just, you just have to say no. I'm pulling out your damn pistol, point it at him, and say, do it again. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and with with regards to the whole articulation subject, I have I grew up in Catholic schools, and I've had a long professional career, and I've been told myself that I sound white when I'm on the phone, yeah. and I don't get that at I all because there's a difference between sounding professional and being professional as opposed to being comfortable when talking with friends. Mm-hmm. So I don't get that concept at all. The micro I heard that you were in Louisiana last week. Pardon? I heard that you were in Louisiana last week. And if that's so, oh, yes, you I probably was. ran into some white people, right? Yes, I and did. And I know you sound... And white people down here do not sound professional. So when they say you sound white, they can't be talking about Louisiana white folks. <laughs> Look, there were a few of them down there last week that did not want to talk to me at all. Because there was one instance at a bar where the bartender was white. And I don't know what her issue was, but she happened to be serving a group of black women. And I'm one of the people where when I'm handing you money, I put it in your hand. It's just common courtesy. And she was giving them their change, and she threw it at them. And the woman commented, and she told them, excuse the French, get the fuck out her bar. And she kept saying it while pointing her finger in the woman's face. Now, you know not to put your finger in the black woman's face. But she was saying it with the comfort of being behind the bar. And, the and, and look, I, and I, 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 then they called I, the bouncer over. I got a recording of what she said. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? This is true. Right. <laughs> and it was with the comfort of knowing that she was safe behind the bar. And I told the mama she has the right one because had that been me and she had her finger in my face, it would not have been the same outcome. The, the Newark would have come out no of you. And that's why you so. never nowhere without me again. <laughs> right. That's exactly. exactly. 
So yeah, it's just a whole different concept. It's like white privilege is more prevalent nowadays. I don't understand it. Yes, they have been emboldened, as Sharon just said over here. Uh, They were emboldened. They were already there waiting for their savior. The same reason that they were using tactics to prevent black leaders from being born, uh, they weren't Mm -hmm. going to the white community. And so they got some of those those, uh, saviors that came in who uh, championed their racist, genocidal, sociopathic causes like Donald Trump. And it was funny uh, because this was right after uh, the whole shooting incident last week. And right after the manifesto came out. Well, the micro the micro racism is constantly there all the time. We're clutching your purse when you come to the elevator, locking your doors when you see it come by. But those are just the small things that the average person has to deal with. It gets a lot worse than that. Ask some of the people who have been lynched how far they can go with it. Um, You know, one of the things that bothers me about what I do on a regular basis is I consistently have to report on the deaths of those around me killed by police or by the state. And the names are so fleeting. Like, we remember names for about three or four years, and then they're vanished, and the next batch of names pop. It's even getting shorter. Like, we forgetting Ronald Green already in Louisiana. And that was worthy of a revolution, uh, what happened to Ronald Green. In Louisiana, and his name ain't even out there right now anymore. It's already forgotten because we got 13 more that just got killed, and everybody's memory ain't good enough to remember four or five thousand names. So it's just That's horrible it. circumstances for sure. Brother Curtis, uh, uh, any commentary? Um, before I leave and join the other call, it's a good that you mentioned Ronald Green because the governor of Louisiana is now in a major hot seat as they've um, found evidence that he was complicit in the cover-up because remember that they um, originally tried to portray the Ronald Green um, execution as um, something totally different than what it was. As a car accident. Yeah, as a car accident. The governor was um, made aware of the situation from the inception and those things are recorded. So Louisiana is about to be on the front forefront of the police brutality um, question once again. Um, I'm sorry, uh, family, but I have to leave to attend the call for our right, hearing in the morning. Like websites to help, man, where we can donate and visit the website. And where to Definitely. get Okay. Um, my book is Slave State, Evidence of Apartheid in America by Curtis Ray Davis II. You can get it online anywhere that you can buy books, Barnes & Nobles, Target, Books a Million, um, Amazon. Also, we want you to um, come to Decarcerate Louisiana on Facebook, um, decarceratelouisiana.org. Um, of course, Abolish Slavery National Network.org, Exception.org. And just pay attention to what's going on across the country. And if you are interested in taking the slavery exception clause out of your own constitution in the state that you're in listening to us, please reach out to Abolish Slavery National Network, um, to our field director, our director of field operations, um, Max Parthas, and we can see if we can get you guys um, some help as we'll 
um, continue to work in solidarity to change this dreadful situation. Um, Yusuf, um, thanks again for having me on. Um, peace out. Sure, brother. Sorry peace, brother. That happens to you down here. Um, see you later, Max. And Sean, sorry for putting you on the spot. But no, it's all out of love. Peace, family. All right. Peace. Peace. That was the director peace, of Curtis. Crossway, Louisiana, Brother Curtis Davis. Always, always a pleasure having him on the show, man. Always. Yes. Uh, yeah, he, he, he's so articulate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you're being racist. That's what Joe Rogan would say. How come you get to say it, but he doesn't, you know? I, I think we really need to put a stop to whenever you hear these white people out there, and even black people, start to talk about mm-hmm. how black people are racist, you've got to shut them down. You got to shut them down right off the bat. Don't even go there. Uh, you don't know enough about it to be saying that. You don't know the difference between discrimination, bigotry, prejudice, hate, and racism. If you don't know the differences between them, then shut your mouth. Uh, right. Because you can get people killed with that type of rhetoric. You literally are getting people killed with that type yeah, of I rhetoric. Was, I was going to correct you on that. They are getting people killed. Yes. Not could, but they are getting people killed. The Joe yes. Rogan, uh, Tucker Carlson, Rush Limbaugh still, you know, he's in the grave, but he's not exempt any longer, you know, anymore, you know. Right. The after shutting, effects are still there. Shutting down uh, Marjorie, what is her Go name, ahead, Marjorie Taylor Green? The Wicked Witch of the wherever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the representative out of Georgia. Yes. In fact, didn't we have an article about her? Um, yeah, I, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's part of the continuation of calling black I, people racist. She gives several I, I examples. Do. I have, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I have tell a short, about it. Yeah, I have a short write-up that you did on the article. It says in a Saturday right. interview on Real America's Voice. That sounds like a Fox program. Green argued that there should be more focus on minorities who carry out racist attacks. It's a quote. Jerry Nadler was on the House floor, and he was talking about white supremacy, she said. And he was bringing up the terrible shooting that happened in Buffalo, but totally ignoring the shooting that happened in California that I think involved an Asian man who was the shooter. Green also pointed to two black men who were accused of attacking white people. These people are guilty of these crimes, and it's not about race. It shouldn't be about race, but they're clearly racist as well. And this clearly. is based on an article from Raw Story. Right. May and 22nd. there was no challenge to it. No oh, challenge in the article. Yep, no challenge in the article. Hmm. She just got away with it, said it out loud, and everybody's starting to take it as truth because you're repeating a lie. And so it must be true because everybody's saying it. Well, the way of the wicked is wide and traveled by many. And the way of the righteous is traveled by few. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that doesn't make it real or true just because a bunch of parrots who are trying to see you dead or in prison repeat it. Exactly. And here's another article. So this one comes from medium.com. And the title is No Karen. There is no such thing as reverse racism. And here's a quote out of it. Racism requires both prejudice and power. You may face prejudice. That's not racism because your race is in power. 
The criminal justice system favors white people. Social institutions favor white people and white culture. And internalized prejudices attribute favorable traits to white people. White people are irrefutably in the place of power, so reverse racism cannot exist. Any thoughts on that, Max? Uh, Actually, I'm going to take it even further than that. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. not only are they using these terms to demonize us, literally call us demons and seek our deaths, but they've incorporated the Christian National Church. Nationalist church. So you've got these evangelicals all across America, these white evangelicals, along with some of their European evangelicals, who are mm-hmm. basically calling for our death in public. The First Amendment does not protect calls for violence. Uh, that is not protected by the First Amendment. And yet they're allowed to get away with it, saying it. Uh, there's a pastor, as a matter of fact, uh, Reg Locke, and he has mm-hmm. thousands People that show up at his church and millions of people that are online uh, listening and watching. And he came out with some of the most horrible things you can imagine somebody's going to say and said it out loud. All the quiet stuff got said out loud in the church by the pastor as directives for the entire congregation of millions. And you got to know that this has an effect on people's minds. So how about we play that track? So people can hear this with their own ears, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Let's Sounds do it. You? All right, this is MSNBC, uh, Mehdi Hassan, on Pastor Greg Locke, and it's going to be followed by some hotness with Blues, uh, Saracino, Wicked, Gone Come. We'll be right back. This is Abolition Today. Peace. Abolition, Abolition. Today. The journalist Sarah Posner has written a book on how white Christian nationalists powered Trump's presidency. She put it in this way in an essay this week for Talking Points Memo, quote, a movement that elevated Trump to messianic status was able to convince millions that satanic forces had robbed God's man in the White House of his anointed perch as the restorer of America's white Christian heritage. Their duty as patriotic spiritual warriors was to go to battle on his behalf. Need an example of what that battle looks like even now? Perhaps you've seen this viral clip of Tennessee pastor and January the 6th attendee, Greg Locke, this week. I'm to the place right now, if you vote Democrat, I don't even want you around this church. You can get out. You can get out, you demon. You can get out, you baby butchering election thief. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. I don't care how mad that makes you. You get pissed off as you want to. You cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat in this nation. They are God-denying demons that butcher babies and hate this nation. Bunch of devils. I'm sick of it. They want to talk about the insurrection. Hmm. Let me tell you something. You ain't seen the insurrection yet. You keep on pushing our buttons, you low-down, sorry, compromisers. You God-hating communist America, you'll find out what an insurrection is because we ain't playing your garbage. We ain't playing your mess. My Bible says that the church of the living God is an institution that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the Bible says that we'll take it by force. That's what the Bible says. Wow. Let me ask you this. 
If a Muslim imam in a mosque said that, looked into the camera and said, you ain't seen an insurrection yet and we'll take it by force. That's what the Quran says. What do you think would happen to that imam? Seriously, what would happen to him? I think we all know. Look, that clip of Locke speaking at his tax-exempt church is one of the most bonkers, most disturbing, most extreme things I have seen in recent years. And I say that as someone who's spent the past seven years covering the likes of Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene. But here's the thing. Thousands of people attend some of Greg Locke's sermons in person, millions online. He's one of more than a dozen pastors who've participated in this weird Stop the Steal roadshow that features General Michael Flynn and Roger Stone and Eric Trump holding events at churches across the country. And when you're calling Democrats demons and devils, it's like more and more Republicans calling Democrats pedophiles. Devils and demons and pedophiles can't be allowed to win elections. They are by definition ungodly and illegitimate. And anything you do to stop them is justified.
Abolition. So you just heard Mehdi Hassan on his show, the Mehdi Hassan show on MSNBC, speaking on Pastor Greg Locke. I don't even know if I can call him a pastor, but Greg Locke, and that was followed up by a tremendously, tremendously uh, timely track by Blues Saracino, Wicked Gonna Come. And, you know, my mother even gave it five stars. Man, that's a really nice track there, Max. That's a good find, man. Yeah, it was fitting um, considering what we just heard. You know, for me, as a person who is a follower of Christ, it's like watching the beast rise from the sea. Like this evil thing that calls itself a church of God, but it's like the church of Philadelphia that he spoke of, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. It's not a church of God. It's a church of evil, and it's spreading and growing, and they're based in everything that they believe on murder and death and kill hating and prejudice and all these different things. There's no good in them. But we're right. the evil ones. They're calling us the devils. We're the demons. <laughs> you know, yes. It, we are, We don't have a lot of time. Yusuf, we got maybe, what, uh, seven minutes left? Uh, how do you want to right. spend it? Uh... We can we can jump into any news stories that you wanted to make sure we got out um, for the week. Well, I, I do want to get some stats. Or any out. upcoming announcements or anything you had to do? Uh, I, I want to get some stats out. Like I said, I, I want to focus on just the black experience in, in this country and how it overly affects us, numerically speaking. We've already shown you in so many ways, uh, but there's some stats I do want people to hear. Uh, first, I'm going to give you something that came from sentencingproject.org. Mind you, these are fallacies of the average because it's a national number. It doesn't really focus on locations where these numbers are spiked up way higher than the national average. And that's the reason why you have that national average. But I'll read them as is. They're bad enough. They say that nationally, one in 81 black adults in the U.S. is serving time in state prison. Wisconsin leads the nation in black imprisonment rates. One of every 36 black Wisconsinites are in prison. In 12 states, more than half the prison population is black. Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Seven states maintain a black-white disparity larger, larger than nine to one. California, Connecticut. Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, New Jersey, and Wisconsin all incarcerate black people at 9 to 1 versus their white counterparts. And there's also an article that came from uh, BJSOJP.gov that says, if recent incarceration rates, and this is from the government, mind you, if recent incarceration rates remain unchanged, An estimated one of every 20 persons, 5.1%, will serve time in a prison during their lifetime. Men, 9%, times more likely than women, which are 1.1%, to be incarcerated in prison at least once in their life. Among men, blacks at 28.5%, one-third, are about twice as likely 
as Hispanics, which are at 16%, and six times more likely than whites at 4.4% to be admitted to prison during their life. Among women, 3.6% of blacks, 1.5% of Hispanics, and 0.5% of whites will enter prison at least once. Uh, And this is the last one from the jail incarceration rates, because remember, we're not just talking about prisons. Prisons are 2.2 to 2.4 million people a year, with 670,000 coming out. They're about the same thing going in every year. But the jails have a larger population. In 2020, the incarceration rate of African Americans in local jails in the United States was 465 incarcerations per 100,000 of the population, the highest rate of any ethnicity. The second highest incarceration rate was among American Indians, Alaskan Natives, at 274 incarcerations per 100,000 of the population. And you can ch- you'll find all those on our website, if not today, then certainly tomorrow. Uh, we'll get them up as soon as possible so you can have this information. That's the reality of things right now in the United States. Yusuf? That's a ton of stats. Thanks for that, Max. And I was just going to say, you know, that and a lot of news articles are going to be up on on our Abolition Today Facebook page. Uh, You'll also see stuff throughout uh, the week, you know, on my my Facebook page or Max's. Uh, And I'll pass it back to you, Max. I see we have a quick caller that we want to get in. Yeah, we got a quick caller. We only got a couple of minutes, so caller 2776. Hey, Max, this is Clarence from San Antonio, Texas. <laughs> hey, what's happening, uh, Clarence? Hey, uh, I was telling everybody that I was Jesus Christ and you're Jesus Christ, too, and guess what I got? Terroristic threat charges against me. I wasn't I wasn't innocent until proven guilty. I wasn't allowed to go to court. I, I was in jail for three months before I could even... Uh, Get uh, an estimate of my court time, which was six, another six nine months. And um, uh, we need to abolish America. You probably like he told me a long time ago. We can't reform this motherfucker. I'm sorry, we can't reform this thing. It needs to be abolished. According to the Declaration of Independence, it says when certain conditions are met, it's our duty to abolish and to be again again. That's right, and to institute a new government of the people and for yeah. the people. Uh, this is yeah. an abolition document. You're right. Three months in jail, man. I'm so sorry to hear that. And you're moving to Belize, right? I'm still on probation. I can't leave until September. I got to wait. If if they don't extend me, I can leave in September. Well, I'm hoping that you'll be able to get what you want to get done um, and find what you're looking for. The, the whole the whole the whole mental health court is is another situation that they don't talk about. They're 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 labeling messiahs and and activists as bipolar, uh, according to the Jewish slave masters DSM, so so that uh, you know they can just make us commit suicide. And then, and then these drugs these drugs are nothing but uh, uh, witchcraft. They don't. They don't even take the, the problem away. They don't treat anybody. They, they just make it worse. If you look at the, the statistics for people that have shot up schools and done all kinds of things, they're all on these mental health drugs. Well, brother Clarence, we got to wrap it up now, man, because we've got to get into our last segment for the evening. Thank you for calling in. Three months right. and, and 
Did he say he's getting terrorist charges because he said me and you was Jesus? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> we, had to, we had to talk about that at some point. But I appreciate you calling, man, and I'll talk to you again soon. Peace. All right. All right, Brother Yusuf, let's go ahead and get into our sponsors and into our final segment, which is a pretty powerful one tonight. We found some gems. Yusuf, you there? Oh, I hit the wrong damn Sorry about that. No, no, no. No, no, no. It was, no, no, no. It was my fault. It was my fault. I, uh, we'll jump right into our sponsors and our partners. Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sama Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, the Black Talk Radio Network, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash abolition today. That's where you'll find all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. You can also text exception, all one word, no spaces, in the exception to 52886 and follow the prompts. This will send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. And as Max said, we have a really, really, really good bridging the gap, as all of them are. Uh, This is an excerpt of Frederick Douglass speaking in April 1865 to the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, and it's entitled, What the Black Man Wants. And that's going to be followed by the legendary Stevie Wonder with Rhapsody, Corday, Chica, and Busta Rhymes. And it's called, Can't Wait, or Can't Put It in the Hands of Fate. So we'll be back. On Sunday, May 29th, well, first and foremost, thank Curtis Davis for calling in. Thank you, Sean, nice. for always your support. Uh, thank you, uh, Tribal, you and know, Sharon. and of course, thank you, Max. Yeah, and Sharon, mm. and uh, I forgot the caller's name that just Clarence. called in. Clarence. Clarence, you know, and all of our, you know, our regular listeners, our new listeners, all of our supporters, uh, definitely shout out to... Uh, Jeanette, hopefully everything is going well with her mom. Her mom is in the hospital. We miss you, uh, Jeanette, and we wish every we wish the best for you and your mom. So we'll be back next Sunday, God willing, May 29th, with another master class on slavery abolition. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. What is freedom? It is the right to choose one's own employment. Certainly it means that, if it means anything. And when any individual or combination of individuals undertakes to decide for any man when he shall work, where he shall work, at what he shall work, and for what he shall work, he or they practically reduce them to slavery. He is a slave. That I understand General Banks to do, to determine for the so-called freedmen when and where and at what and for how much he shall work, when he shall be punished, and by whom punished. It is absolute slavery. It defeats the beneficent intention of the government, if it has beneficent intentions, in regards to the freedom of our people. I have had but one idea for the last three years, 
to present to the American people. And the phraseology in which I clothe it is the old abolition phraseology. I am for the immediate, unconditional, and universal enfranchisement of the black man in every state in the Union. Without this, his liberty is a mockery. Without this, you might as well almost retain the old name of slavery for his condition. For in fact, if he is not the slave of the individual master, he is the slave of society and holds his liberty as a privilege, not as a right. He is at the mercy of the mob and has no means of protecting himself. It may be objected, however, that this pressing of the Negro's right to suffrage is premature. Let us have slavery abolished, it may be said. Let us have labor organized, and then, in the natural course of events, the right of suffrage will be extended to the Negro. I do not agree with this. The constitution of the human mind is such that if it once disregards the conviction forced upon it by a revelation of truth, it requires the exercise of a higher power to produce the same conviction afterwards. The American people are now in tears. The Shenandoah has run blood, the best blood of the North. All around Richmond, the blood of New England and of the North has been shed. Of your sons, your brothers, and your fathers, we all feel in the existence of this rebellion that judgments terrible, widespread, far-reaching, overwhelming, are abroad in the land, and we feel, in view of these judgments just now, a disposition to learn righteousness. This is the hour. Our streets are in mourning. Tears are falling at every fireside. And under the chastisement of this rebellion, we have almost come up to the point of conceding this great, this all-important right of suffrage. I fear that if we fail to do it now, if abolitionists fail to press it now, we may not see, for centuries to come, the same disposition that exists at this moment. Hence I say, now is the time to press this right. It may be asked, why do you want it? Some men have got along very well without it. Women have not this right. Shall we justify one wrong by another? This is the sufficient answer. Shall we at this moment justify the deprivation of the Negro of the right to vote because someone else is deprived of that privilege? I hold that women, as well as men, have the right to vote. And my heart and voice go with the movement to extend suffrage to women. But that question rests upon another basis than which our right rests. We may be asked, I say, why we want it. I will tell you why we want it. We want it because it is our right, first of all. No class of man can, without insulting their own nature, be content with any deprivation of their rights. We want it again as a means for educating our race. Men are so constituted that they derive their conviction of their own possibilities, largely by the estimate formed of them by others. If nothing is expected of a people, that people will find it difficult to contradict that expectation. By depriving us of suffrage, you affirm our incapacity to form an intelligent judgment respecting public men and public measures. You declare before the world 
that we are unfit to exercise the elective franchise, and by this means, lead us to undervalue ourselves, to put a low estimate upon ourselves, and to feel that we have no possibilities like other men. Again, I want the elective franchise for one as a colored man, because ours is a peculiar government based upon a peculiar idea, and that idea is universal suffrage. If I were in a monarchical government, or an autocratic or aristocratic government, where the few bore rule and the many were subject, there would be no special stigma resting upon me because I did not exercise the elective franchise. It would do me no great violence. Mingling with the mass, I should partake of the strength of the mass. I should be supported by the mass, and I should have the same incentives to endeavor with the mass of my fellow men. It would be no particular burden, no particular deprivation. But here, where universal suffrage is the rule, where that is the fundamental idea of the government, to rule us out is to make us an exception, to brand us with the stigma of inferiority, and to invite to our heads the missiles of those about us. Therefore, I want the franchise for the black man. History say don't repeat her. Many years a slave took notes from Lapita. You should marvel at the fighting. Feel like a leader. Apologize. You denied my people. Made I just legal. We all paralegal. Gotta defend ourselves when the laws ain't equal. Cops ain't lethal. Death in cathedrals. Bang, bang, boogie. You can die wearing yeah. a hoodie. Sometimes we gotta find our creative I defeated Father Time Was raised by Mother Nature In the project tenement walls Sudden withdrawal The true rebel It's easy to spot the government flaws Mass confusion People in power commit collusion Indoctrinated students I'm the leader of the movement Take lifetime Trying to duck the school to prison pipeline Disenfranchised Amazing I'm in my right mind Create change Survive Struggle to maintain So many lives within the campaign A damn shame I'm thinking how will we survive When the freedom that we have is a facade Yeah
I am a slavery abolitionist. Some of you may know me. I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance. Max and Yusuf do not like to ask for money, so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets, and this is so important. So if you can help, you can find the information at the top of the Facebook page for Abolition Today. Thank you. Abolition. 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 Abolition.